When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by the In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. He that has got a great and dangerous wound sees a necessity of the cure, and that he is a dead man if he does not get help. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled, Pray with Violent Zeal. It was preached by Christopher Love in the 1640s. If you're like me, Joel, you heard Pray with Violent Zeal and you thought, that's kind of an odd name for a sermon. Most people, when they think of praying, it's kind of a peaceful, quiet thing. You do it on your hands and knees or maybe in the closet or whatever it is. It's kind of almost like a meditation time, right? It's very quiet and calm. But for Christopher Love, he's this Presbyterian minister who he really didn't have any fear, as you'll see as we go over his life. And he uh, he died during the English Civil War. And for him, this was not really a matter of peaceful meditation to pray. He was praying with zeal. He had energy and passion in his prayers. Troy, Christopher Love was born in 1618. We don't quite know the exact date or month, but we do know that he was executed in 1651. So another short life. He had 33 years to make a difference. Uh, He didn't grow up in a godly household. He didn't grow up in the church. He heard his first sermon when he was 15 years old, and that was because him and his friends went to church kind of as a joke. They're, you know, just being up to no good. They thought they'd go to the church and make fun of the minister, essentially. But the Lord used that sermon that the minister was preaching that day to speak and convict Christopher Love. He went home that day depressed and and convicted of his sin. And to kind of give you an idea of the household that he was in and the relationship he had with his father, his father wanted to cheer him up. And so they recommended they go to the local gentleman's club. But Christopher Love, his heart was changed, and he told his father, I, I'm, I, I want to go back to church. I want to hear more about Jesus. Now, most of us seeing our child going from living for the world to begging to visit church would see this as just a really great thing. But Christopher's love dad did not. In fact, when he said, I want to go to church and hear a sermon the next day, Christopher, his dad, took him to the highest room in the house and locked him in there and said, you're not getting out to hear a sermon. But almost like a movie or like a TV show or something, uh, Christopher Love was changed and he would not be stopped. So he took these sheets, tied them together, threw them out his window and snuck out of his house to go hear a sermon, which again is crazy because, you know, if you were watching a movie, they would be sneaking off. This kid would be sneaking off to do something bad and his parents would be trying to stop him. In this case, in real life, he's sneaking off to go hear a sermon, and his dad is trying to stop him. Now, the man he wanted to hear was William Airberry, and this person would have a huge influence and actually be basically a second father or a father, a spiritual father to Christopher Love, because his own dad 
never got over this. He, he was so broken up by this change of heart in his son and his friends too. The, and many of his friends decided they were going to give up their sinful ways and they would meet together twice a week to pray and read the Bible. And eventually people were calling Christopher Love the little Puritan. And this really bothered him to the point that William Airberry said, could I raise Christopher Love for you? I can tell this is bothering you. Let me just I will take him on. And the dad said, yeah, you can have him. I, I can't do this anymore. Now, Christopher Love's life uh, can get kind of confusing. So I'm going to stick to a few kind of bullet points here that gives a, a good overview, a good snapshot of his life. He went to Oxford and he got his bachelor's degree there. And he, he was a very, very hard worker. But before he could get his master's degree, he was thrown out for refusing to sign a convocation. An archbishop named William Laud at the time was trying to unify the Church of England and suppress the Puritans, but Christopher Love had, had no desire to go along with those mandates, and he was kicked out of school because of it. At this point, Christopher Love goes to be a chaplain of a sheriff. He meets his wife there, Mary Stone. They get married. They have a beautiful, strong relationship. Uh, he then was invited to preach at a church, but the bishop in town didn't like that he wasn't ordained, so for three years he was not getting paid for any of the work he was doing. So he becomes, you know, obviously very interested in becoming ordained, but he won't allow himself to be ordained by the Church of England because he thinks what they're doing to basically unify and push the pilgrim, the Puritans out is bad. And remember, I mean, the pilgrims have already left for Massachusetts at this point. So people have left England because of religious persecution by the Church of England already. Uh, this 20 or 30 years ago that happened. So he didn't want to get involved with the Church of England, so he goes to Scotland to be ordained by the Presbyterians. However, the Scottish at the time were only ordaining people who would stay up north in Scotland. And despite the fact that Christopher Love said, like, yeah, I'll stay here, no problem. I just want to get ordained. They kind of sent him home empty-handed. So he gets back and is invited to preach at Newcastle. He is finally getting that opportunity to preach. And when he does, he goes after the Church of England. He's, he's preaching strong, and he ends up in prison. Right alongside the murderers and the thieves of the town was a preacher whose crime was speaking out against the Church of England. Let's just kind of pause for a second and, and reflect. I mean, his life, his dad didn't want him to hear about the church. He spent years getting an education only to get kicked out of school. He couldn't get ordained and went without pay. And when he finally gets to preach, he's immediately thrown in jail. I don't know about you, but I probably would have given up around this point. But something crazy happens, and and we don't use the word crazy on this show often. There's some really interesting that happens, but this is kind of special. People start to show up to hear him preach in jail. The guards don't let him have any visitors. I said, no, nobody can visit. So they just gather around the bars of his window, and he starts having services right there, preaching to anyone who will listen, and crowds flock to hear him speak. He gets taken to London, and he's acquitted of all the charges. But this would be the first of several times he ends up getting sent to jail for preaching. Another time comes, he preaches, he says, hey, this peace treaty that everyone wants is for evil reasons. These men are wicked. And he says this famous quote, I would rather have a just war than a wicked peace treaty. Well, he said that in front of all the men that signed the peace treaty, so they tossed him in jail. Now, anything involving the English Civil War can get kind of confusing. There's a lot of power shifts. There's a lot of changes as time goes on. But there is a man named Oliver Cromwell who took over England 
and it was suspected that some of the English ministers were plotting with the old king to take back his throne. And Christopher Love was on a list of ministers that, that were supposedly plotting again to, to take back the old throne for the king. Christopher Love defended himself. He gave a great defense, but it wasn't enough. He was accused by treason by the new ruler, Oliver Cromwell, and the trial was quite a sham. It was rushed along without a, a proper trial. And, I mean, a lot of people just think that this was because Christopher Love was challenging the Church of England and, and not going along with the status quo at that time. But, uh, regardless, Christopher Love was sentenced to death and executed. His final words as he lay his head down on the execution block, uh, he wasn't bitter. He preached Christ until the very end and died saying, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. His wife, not long after, was quoted saying, He was a man who lived for too long in heaven to spend that much time away from it here on earth. His books and writing would make a huge impact on the world. One of the people most affected by him, Jonathan Edwards. And in this sermon, we're going to see a man who lived his life by conviction, passionate. You'll notice throughout the story, he doesn't back down from a fight. And despite having, I really would say, more than most people, the world kind of against him, he continued to turn to God, and he set his course on following him every single step of the way. And so for that reason, when he says pray with violent zeal, he means get in there and pray passionately to God to show you the way to go. Matthew 11:12 And from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force There is but one doctrine and that is taken from the consideration of the quality of those persons who did express this holy violence Who they were our savior himself acquaints us In Matthew 21:31 Jesus said to them Verily I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Verse 32. The tax collectors and harlots believed John. The Pharisees that led strict lives had a kind of legal righteousness, yet they were not the people that did receive Jesus Christ, but tax collectors and harlots. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected or frustrated the word of God against themselves or within themselves being not baptized by him. But the tax collector justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John, Luke seven twenty nine and 30. They that used this violence were men that lived by cheat, deceit, exaction, and oppression. So did the tax collectors. Where the observation is this, that usually those that have been most sinful before conversion do express the most holy zeal and eagerness of affection after Jesus Christ in the gospel after they are converted. In the handling of this point, I will do three things. First, I will demonstrate the truth of it by scripture instances. Second, I will show the reasons why God chooses the most notorious of sinners as his chief men. And third, I will show why such men are more violent in religion than others. For starters, I will demonstrate the truth of the doctrine by Scripture. I will give but two instances, the one in Mary Magdalene, the other in Paul. 
With Mary Magdalene, she was an unclean person, an actual harlot, a great sinner. But after her conversion, she yacht nothing too much for Christ. She anointed his feet with a pound of spikenard that was very costly, worth three hundred pence, that is, worth above nine pound in our money. John 5.2, she broke through many difficulties to come to Christ. Christ was in another man's house, and he, Simon, a Pharisee. Luke 7.36 and 37, and set down to supper. She might have raised an objection and said, I cannot come at him, and they in the house may think evil of it. But all this could not keep her back. Further, there were more discouragements. Not only Judas, but others were angry at her. Mark 14.4 There were some, not only Judas, but others also, that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? Even the disciples, too, had indignation at her. Matthew 26.8 The disciples had indignation. Yet she came to Christ through all these difficulties, and she wept. Luke 7.44 And that so plentifully, that she washed the feet of Christ with her tears. Her eyes that had been windows of lust were now floodgates of tears. Another instance is that of Saul. Before his conversion, he was a notorious sinner. He had a hand in the death of that holy man Stephen. Acts 8, 1. He was a man that breathed out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. Acts 9, 1. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. 1 Timothy 1.13 He cared not what he did to the people of God. Even further, he compelled others to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, he persecuted them even to the strange cities. And yet, behold, this man that was so eminent a sinner before his conversion, afterward was redeemed. He grew and abounded in grace. He grew as eminent in grace as he was notorious in sin. As he had hailed men to prison formerly, so now he drew them to Christ. He preached that faith that once he persecuted. So much for the first point, the proof of the point by Scripture. The second particular is this. Why did God rely on chiefly, as were most notorious, life-livers? I answer, two reasons may be given of it. The first to beat off the Pharisees from wrestling in their own righteousness, that they might see that salvation is of grace and not of works. Had this effect appeared in multitudes of scribes and Pharisees, some would have attributed it to their learning, others to their strict and holy walking and austere conversation. People would have yacht they had merited this at God's hands. And so God passed by them, and chose others of a far more unholy and profane to knock them off from their own righteousness and from dependence upon it. Second, it was to magnify the riches, freeness, and greatness of God's grace that was brought in and manifested by the gospel. God would there allow them to understand that the doctrine of the gospel was a doctrine of grace. The greater the wound is, the more skill and care of the physician is seen and commended. 
The more vast the amount of sin and the greater the sins are that are pardoned, the more the grace of God is advanced. So much for the second point. The third particular is this. Why are such vile and sinful persons most eager and violent after their conversion? This proceeds from a holy indignation against themselves, which is a fruit of repentance or conversion. As you read in 2 Corinthians 7.11, there arises in such a desire to be revenged upon themselves. Isaiah 30.22 says, You will defile also the covering of the graven images of silver, and the ornament of your molten images of gold. You will cast them away as a minstress cloth. You will say of them, Get you away. And in Isaiah 2.20, In that day a man will cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they have made, each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Cranmer burned his right hand first, because he had used it to subscribe his rituals and rites, and oftentimes repeated, put it into the flame. Oh, this unworthy right hand! A holy indignation makes him to reason so with himself. Could I sin worse than others? And will I now be contented with less grace than others? Could I be as swift as a camel in the ways of sin, and will I creep like a snail in the ways of God? Have I been zealous for the committing of sin, and will I be cold in my motions after Christ? Such people are ashamed of their former ways, and so they now labor to take off that reproach by making some reparations. This also proceeds from that sense that is in such persons of an utter and absolute necessity of getting into Christ. You know a man that has but a cut finger will not make much ado. But he that has got a great and dangerous wound sees a necessity of the cure, and that he is a dead man if he does not get help. So a man that lives in a common way of sinning, he thinks his sins are inconsiderable. He sees no need of coming close to Christ for the cure. But a man that has been much in sin and notorious in wickedness, when God comes and opens his eyes by his effectual calling, he sees a need of getting help by Jesus Christ, and that if he has not Christ, he is undone forever. He shall perish eternally. And so I have finished the doctrinal part. I proceed now to make application, and this doctrine is eminently useful to three sorts of men. To those that have been formerly very great sinners, but are now converted. Labor to follow this pattern that is here propounded in the gospel and in this doctrine. Labor to proportion your graces now that you are converted to the number and greatness of your sins before conversion. As you have been violent in sin formerly, so see that you now be as violent after the things of heaven. So did Manassas. He was a great sinner, he filled Jerusalem with blood. He was a gross idolater, a destroyer of God's worship. In Second Chronicles 33.12, And therefore he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So Paul, because he was a great sinner, greater than the rest of the apostles, therefore he labored more abundantly than they all. If therefore sin has abounded, see that grace does abound now. 
as you have formerly added iniquity to iniquity, see that now you add grace to grace. As you have with much eagerness given up the members of your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness to sin and uncleanliness, so see that you give them up as instruments of righteousness to holiness, especially the grace of humiliation and of love. In the grace of humiliation, little humiliation is not suitable to great sins. That garment that has the most spots on it must have the most rinsing. That which has the most dust in it needs the most beating. There should be some equality between the strength that was put forth in the service of sin and that which we now put forth in the service of God. It is very observable. Leviticus 11, 24 and 25 show, He that touches an unclean thing will be unclean till evening, but he that bears an unclean thing will wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Though a man be defiled with a little sin, if he does but touch a sin, as it were, commit a little sin, he still has need to be humbled. But those that wallow in sinful courses and bear sin about them must look to be more humbled than others are. See that you proportion your love to Christ to your sinfulness against Christ in times past. Have you been a great and vile sinner before conversion? Know that a little love to Christ is not answerable to your great sins. Luke 7, 17 Her sins which are many are forgiven her, therefore she loved much. Jesus Christ expects and requires more love of such from one he has pardoned much than he does of those to whom little is forgiven. We read in John twenty-one fifteen, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Jesus Christ did not ask him, Do you love me at all? Nor, Do you love me as these? But, Do you love me more than these? You have sinned more than these. Do you love me more than these? Christ expected more love from Peter than from the rest of the disciples. And so Peter did return more love to Christ than the rest did. And though the book of Acts be called the Acts of the Apostles, Yet there is more spoken of Peter than of all the rest of the apostles that had seen Christ in the flesh. Peter, after his fall, did show more love than the rest. Peter preached the first sermon after Christ's resurrection. Peter was the first that went into the tomb after Christ's death and resurrection. Although Peter and John did run to the tomb, and John outran Peter, and came first there, yet Peter first went down into the tomb to see where Christ was laid. When Christ, after his resurrection, was walking upon the waters, Peter cast himself into the sea to go meet Jesus. He had no patience to stay until he came at him. Peter converted more souls to Christ than all the rest of the apostles did, three thousand souls at one sermon. Peter died for Christ. He was crucified for Christ, and he desired that he might be crucified with his head downward, because he thought it was too much honor for him to die as his master. So you see that as Peter had been more treacherous to his master than the rest, so Peter was more ardent in his love to Christ than the rest. And so you must all learn to see that as your sins have been more and greater than the sins of other men, so your humiliation must be more, 
your love must be stronger. This also may teach you to magnify the riches and freeness of God's grace, that God should cast an eye of grace and love upon such a wretch as you were, that God should pass by such men as the strict Pharisee and look upon you, that God should not make you as an example in punishment as you were in sin, that you should be made a monument of his mercy who deserved to be a spectacle of wrath, that God should make his mercy to rest upon you that it might cause his justice to take hold upon you. This doctrine is useful to men of a civil type, of an honest and inoffensive behavior in the world that have been religiously educated, lived moral lives that never broke out into such gross and exorbitant courses as other men have. To you I would say that you are of a more civil life than others, and so you are apt to persuade yourselves your cause is better than others. Consider, others are more easily and ordinarily converted than you are. Tax collectors go to heaven before you. You read in Luke 18.14, the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee. Luther has a notable gloss upon these words. It is far easier for harlots and notorious sinners to be saved than for proud and noble saints, because the former are easily brought to a sense of their sins, but the latter are likely to perish in the conceit of their own righteousness, unless they are converted in an extraordinary manner. This I speak, not that I would dissuade you from a civil course of life or draw you to open profaneness, but that you may not rest upon your moral accomplishments, upon your good meanings, and think that you are sermon-proof, that the minister can hardly meet with your corruptions and consciences. If God does convert such men usually, they are not so eminent in grace as others. This is expressed in Luke 7.43, He to whom much is forgiven loves much and does much service. Usually this type content themselves with smaller measures of grace than those whose transgressions have exceeded. What your sins lack in bulk and magnitude, you make up for in number. Your transgressions are many, your backslidings are increased. Jeremiah 5.6 says, Your continuance in sin makes your sins equivalent to greater sins. If your sins fall short of others in nature, it may be they exceed in aggravations. It may be you sin against more mercy, more knowledge. It may be you may have more sin in your heart, although another sin breaks out more openly. This doctrine is also useful to profane men, to the less moral men. First, let this be an invitation and encouragement to you to come in to Christ and to embrace the gospel. Although your sins be great, yet they are not so great as the mercies of God. The mercy of God is compared to a sea. The sea, you know, is a very great deep. A great leviathan may be covered in the sea as well as a little fish. A great rock as well as a little pebble. Though you have been very sinful, yet your conversion takes away all infamy from you. Paul was once a blasphemer, but that reproach was rolled away when through the grace of God he found mercy. It is very observable that in the genealogy of Christ there are but four women mentioned. It is not usual to mention women in genealogies, 
and the scripture sets a mark of infamy upon them all. The first is Tamar in Matthew 1.3. She was an incestuous woman, for she lay with her father-in-law, as it is recorded in Genesis 38.38. The second is Rahab, verse 5. She was a harlot, as shown in Hebrews 11.31. The third is Ruth, verse 5. She came of Moab, the son of Lot, by incest, begotten of his own daughter, in Genesis 19.37. The fourth is Bathsheba, who was guilty of adultery. This is done for the comfort and encouragement of the most infamous sinners to come into Christ. If God calls you, you are likely to be greater instruments of his glory than others. A persecuting Saul became a preaching Paul, and a moral Mary became a weeping Mary. She, whose prostitution had been spoken of in all the places where she dwelt, afterwards her grace came to be spoken of wherever the gospel was preached. Because of doctrines of comfort many men suck poison from, and so get their ruin, therefore I shall lay down a caution or two. Take heed you do not abuse this doctrine. Do not make the conversion of any scandalous sinner to be any stumbling block in your way to heaven. It was the great stumbling block in the way of the Pharisees. When they saw that Christ would eat meat with tax collectors and sinners, they said, He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Conversion, though it finds us vile and bad, it does not leave us so. Take care you do not suck this poison from it, that when you hear the worst men are before conversion, the better they will be after conversion. Some, it may be, will draw this inference from it, that it is best to be as vile and wicked as one can, for so one will be most zealous afterwards. Take caution of that, for it is a great question whether God will convert you or not, and if you be not converted, all your sins will be so many cords to tie you in hell. The aggravations of your sins will be additions to your torment and punishment. The deeper you are in sin, the greater must your humiliation be. Will any wise man break his leg, because a broken bone will set and knit again will be stronger than ever before? The longer you continue in sin, the longer will God keep you under suspension, and it will be long before he vouchsafes the comforts of his spirit. But he will fill you with indignation and horror. Though great sins cannot lay waste the grace of God, yet they may lay waste the peace of conscience. Though it may be they will not put you into a state of ejection, yet they will bring you into a state of dejection. If you are not cast off, yet you will be cast down, and therefore take heed you do not abuse this precious doctrine. And so I have done with both doctrines and finished the text. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. I think it's interesting, uh, Love's observations, his viewpoints on how different people seem to react to God's mercy. And he talks about how someone with uh, a very sinful past who is then saved from it seems to have more of an appreciation, more of a desired longing for striving after Jesus and after God. 
And I think that's, you know, one of the points that, that love wants to communicate is that we are all broken and in need of God's mercy, and we should all be obsessed almost with with seeking after God. I mean, I like, he he uses that passage where he talks about Peter running to the gravesite of of Jesus. And I like that because that's, that's what our hearts should be. We should be fervently, you know, as fast as we can trying to seek after Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Joshua Cook. Joshua Cook is the husband of Janelle and the father of two boys under three. Joshua and Janelle live in southern New Mexico and are members of the Quorum Dio Community Church, a group of transformed disciples who live before the face of God for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. Please visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at Revived Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts and you have taken a look at the website, also you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just look for Revive Thoughts. There we are. If you wanted to send a message to Joel or myself, you can message us at revivethoughts at gmail.com or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just shoot us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And if you heard this episode, this episode was done by a uh, speaker who just sent us an email and said, hey, I really enjoy what you're doing want to help and we sent him back this sermon if you would also like to do a sermon be a part of the project of bringing these sermons back to life and lend your voice to history just shoot us an email or contact us however you would like to and we would love to start getting you set up on that same process this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.